From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. And I'm Bob Garfield. The murder of two good Samaritans in Portland, Oregon a week ago, unlike many other such episodes, seemed to be a zeitgeist moment, as Portland's mayor, Ted Wheeler, put it earlier this week. Our current political climate allows far too much room for those who spread bigotry. Violent words can lead to violent acts. The victims had rushed to the defense of two young women being racially taunted and were stabbed to death while intervening. One of the women was Muslim in a hijab. The killer, an avowed racist, was widely described as a white supremacist. Alleged white supremacist accused of stabbing two good Samaritans to death on a commuter train in Portland. A police say suspected white supremacist, 35-year-old Jeremy Christian, went on an anti-Muslim tirade when three men... Christian was a known white supremacist who had previously shown up to extreme right-wing marches and performed Nazi salutes. Because reports of hate crimes appeared to have risen in tandem with the prominence of the alt-right, and because the alt-right is a vocal advocate of Donald Trump, some were quick to connect the dots, tracing a straight line between Trumpism and the hate crime. Vice President Joe Biden uh, partially putting this at the doorstep of the White House and saying that President Trump's rhetoric is partially to blame for divisions in the country and the rise in racially charged attacks like the one in Portland. As the week rolled on, a debate over free speech flared. A white power march is scheduled for this weekend, and Mayor Wheeler, citing public safety but in apparent indifference to the First Amendment, sought to revoke the organizer's permit unsuccessfully. Corey Pine, a reporter for Willamette Week in Portland, has been covering these stories. Corey, welcome. Thanks, Bob. Nice to be here. Portland has been caricatured as a kind of multi-culty, vegan, tree-hugging paradise filled with yoga studios and artisanal bong boutiques. Portlandia doesn't conjure up violent racism. Well, there's a lot more to the history of Portland. I mean, everything you said is true. All of that stuff is here. But when it was the Oregon Territory, it was whites only. In the 20s, the Klan was very active here. In the 80s and 90s, it was the center of the racist skinhead movement. And a lot of that history has been forgotten. So a week after the killings, what is the mood and and what's the discussion locally? I would say that the mood locally is one of obviously sadness over the loss of life. Fear over the rally, which you rightly described as a white power rally that's coming to town, and anger over the circumstances that led to this, the sense of powerlessness that something is descending on this place, or even worse, emerging from it, that terrorism has emerged from this community. In the introduction, I referred to the zeitgeist and to the reflex to connect dots. Uh, but I gather from what you're saying, the same dots are being connected in Portland as they are, you know, 3,000 miles away. I would say that locally, one of the first reactions I heard in terms of uh, the coverage I contributed to Willamette Week, and I saw this comment directed at other papers, was, why aren't you calling this terrorism? That's a valid criticism. I think it calls into question some of the racial biases that are used when we discuss attacks like this. How come it's always Islamic terrorism? But the first presumption about this character is that he uh, is a mentally ill loner. There was also undeniably some rather defensive local reaction about this being a racially motivated hate crime. It's an overwhelmingly majority white city, Portland. That's to be expected. But nowhere near the level of distortion about the motives for this crime that has occurred in the national discussion. All right, let's talk about the national discussion, particularly the reaction in the right-wing media who have accused the left in general of misrepresenting the episode. The accused killer was not a Trump voter. He actually backed Jill Stein and Bernie Sanders in the 2016 race and indeed called for violent attacks on Trump supporters during the election. A video from the day before the stabbing shows him denouncing not just Muslims, but also Jews and Christians. Well, he didn't just hate Muslims. He hated everybody. So uh, enough of this white supremacy nonsense. Those are, uh, to put it charitably, cherry-picked details from a long record of hateful white supremacism. This guy, Jeremy Christian, he did express support on his Facebook page a handful of times for Bernie Sanders, Jill Stein, in the context of wanting to murder Hillary Clinton, sandwiched by dozens, hundreds more posts 
espousing anti-Semitism, saying Zionists belong in the ovens, square that with his alleged support for Bernie Sanders. He did say that not just all Christians, but only Christians who failed to follow his vision of true Christianity also belonged in the ovens. What makes those more relevant than his act? For at least two days, he had been seen in this neighborhood harassing black women, making Islamophobic comments. On the train before, he stabbed three men, killing two. He was hassling this young Muslim woman. Uh, He was making comments like, get out of the country, Muslims don't belong here. Why is that less relevant than a handful of Facebook posts? There's another thing to consider. As far as I know, I'm the only journalist who actually interviewed this man before he committed the killings, about a month before. He was at one of these free speech rallies by the same group that's uh, organizing one on June 4th here in Portland. I didn't get much useful information out of him, but I noticed his uh, runic tattoos, which fit with another thing that he posted about often, which was his Vinlander ideology. Vinlander? Are we talking about Nordic supremacy or something? Yeah, essentially. It's a callback to some esoteric Nazi ideology that dates to the early 20th century. He is steeped in this stuff. So are we to consider those facts as irrelevant when we call him some kind of Bernie bro? I mean, people are saying that. It's outrageous. Are we to ignore his remarks shouted as soon as he entered the courtroom? Free speech or die, Portland. You got no safe place. This is America. Get out if you don't like free speech. Death to the enemies of America. Leave this country if you hate our freedom. Death to Antifa. Death to Antifa, meaning anti-fascist protesters. I mean, it's absurd to try to paint this man as some kind of leftist or as some kind of... Agnostic uh, outsider. Yeah. He was friends with skinheads. It appears that he was radicalized in prison. I mean, it's frustrating to see known liars like Mike Cernovich be able to influence the mainstream media discourse in a way that is completely misleading. Can I quote something else that he said on his Facebook page? This is after his fleeting support for Bernie Sanders and after Trump's inauguration in January. He said, if Trump is the next Hitler, then I am joining his SS. Nihilist criminals like me facilitate and run the show if we are talking about recreating the Third Reich. You need unhindered and unhinged thugs for dirty work. Does that sound like any Bernie Sanders supporter you've ever heard? No, it sounds explicitly uh, white supremacist, and it uh, also sounds like the output of extremely disordered mind. So I guess both of those ideas can be true simultaneously. Now, on the subject of disorder, there are these rallies scheduled, and the mayor has come out against them on public safety grounds. Now, I would say that the First Amendment is hospitable to the ugliest speech and to the ugliest demonstrations, as long as they're nonviolent. How do you square the mayor's position with the constitutionally guaranteed right to peaceably assemble? As uncomfortable as it is, I, I understand the mayor's position. Some of the groups organizing this rally, they have a record of violence. They court violence everywhere they go. The headliner of this rally on June 4th is a guy named Kyle Chapman, based stickman, as he's known online, to his alt-right followers. He is famous only for beating people up. First in the April 15th riots in Berkeley, where he broke a stick over a leftist protester's head. So let's consider that. The local group that's invited him, I've witnessed one of its members, a really big guy, about 6'4", calls himself Tiny, flatten a kid half his size, He said it was defensive, but there's a video online you can look and decide for yourself. These groups talk about free speech when they're talking to mainstream reporters, when they're talking to city officials, when they're talking to police. But when they talk to themselves, they talk about collecting bounties for knocking out Antifa teeth. They talk about the looming civil war. They talk about their twisted race politics and their false history, and I'm talking about the way that they portray the Confederacy and slavery and all kinds of issues. There should be no mystery about who these people are and what they represent. And I would invite any journalist, before they describe them as merely a free speech rally, to just go on their Facebook pages, listen to their YouTube videos, see what they're saying to their own crew. Point taken, but as they say, sunlight is the best disinfectant. 
And assuming they don't incite violence, why shouldn't they be permitted to read from Mein Kampf if the police are there to keep any violent behavior at bay? They absolutely have a First Amendment right to read from Mein Kampf in public. The other residents of the city also have a right to counter-protest. This whole free speech debate, when you consider it in the bigger context of these groups traveling around the country, not to their own rallies, but also to anti-Trump rallies, to anti-police brutality rallies, to all sorts of uh, liberal and left-wing causes, bringing weapons, bringing body armor, talking in advance about their violent intentions. I mean, they don't care about free speech. If these people get their way, there won't be free speech for any of us. This is a fascist movement. It's co-opted the language of, you know, liberal concern for free speech. They are twisting it for their own ends. It is not a sincere concern about free speech. But even if they are co-opting our most sacred constitutional rights in order to advance their fascist agenda, the right itself within the framework of peaceful demonstration is immutable. So it's a bit of a conundrum, no? Or isn't it? You can go online and actually see people making the, the argument that because three men stood up for two young women who were being verbally assaulted and maybe shoved this guy first, that his free speech rights were violated. And if that is where the academic discussion of free speech is going, then I want no part of it. I mean, if these men didn't stand up and put themselves in between this armed lunatic and these vulnerable young women, there would be a lot more people dead. Corey, thank you. Thanks a lot, Bob. Corey Pine is a reporter for Willamette Week in Portland, Oregon. Coming up, is Trump's Russia problem sucking up too much ink and airtime? This is On The Media. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate. Then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is On the Media. I'm Bob Garfield. And I'm Brooke Gladstone. For months, the press has been buzzing about the Trump campaign's alleged ties to Russia. Trump has acknowledged Russia was on his mind when he fired the FBI director. Kushner's contacts with the Russians are a focus of the FBI's investigation into Moscow's election meddling. There have been intercepted communications involving Russians talking about or with people around Trump. At Wednesday's White House press conference, Sean Spicer declared that the White House would now take a new approach to Russia-related inquiries. Going forward, all questions on these matters will be referred to outside counsel Mark Castles. A fait accompli. No more answers from the press secretary about Flynn, about Kushner, about related financial records, about back channels. And so the White House press briefings, if you can still call them that, will now be even less worthy of news coverage. Maybe. But does it matter? The Russia investigations now in motion will unfold with or without the constant barrage of coverage. Perhaps the press could seize the moment to focus more on some other pressing issues, like health care or wages, like the fact that the president has repealed or delayed regulations that protect workers from unsafe conditions or wage theft, like the climate. And then there are the missed opportunities of the Democratic Party. If the media aim to inform the public, the party wants to win the public over, and they both must strive to recover or reinforce their relevance. Because, says Jonathan Martin, national political correspondent for The New York Times, there's a widening gap between what the political types and regular people care about most. If you're in Washington or if you follow politics really closely, then you're probably following every jot and tittle of 
the days of our lives, Trump version. It's constantly some kind of drama. Some of it's related to personnel. Some of it's related to the president's latest comments or provocations. And oftentimes these days, it's related to the investigations surrounding his campaign's dealings with Russia last year. Now, if you don't follow politics really closely, if you don't work in and around politics in Washington, you probably are vaguely aware of all of those things, but you don't have the kind of encyclopedic knowledge of exactly what is happening. And more likely, you are living your own life and you care more about issues that directly impact your own life, healthcare, the economy. You had some interesting data in your piece. You noted that Trump's firing of FBI Director James Comey was a lot bigger news for the national media than it was for a lot of other Americans. If you look at polling data, including a survey that we saw earlier this month from The Wall Street Journal, you've got over 30 percent of Americans who say that they don't even know enough about the firing of FBI Director Comey to even have an opinion about it. (laughs) You use the special election in Montana to illustrate the tension between the national priorities, as you mentioned, Russia, maybe corruption, conflict of interest, the firing of Comey and so on, and local priorities. The Democrat in that special election chose to close his campaign by focusing chiefly on health care, the Republican health care bill that came out of the House. And right now there is a division in the party between those who were consumed by the president's actions, conduct, and his campaign last year, and the policy issues that are shaping people's lives day in, day out. I'm just wondering if the Democrats really are racking their brains trying to figure out what their agenda is, why not take a look at Bernie Sanders? He's not the establishment and everybody hates the establishment. Uh, I think they're doing more than taking a look. I think they're borrowing uh, lots of his playbook. I mean, if you look at what's happening now uh, around the country with candidates, you see a lot more of them running on $15 an hour minimum wage, running on uh, free college tuition. So why do so many smart strategists seem to act on the assumption that voters care as much as they do about the Trump-Russia affair or his conflicts of interest? Well, because they think that there's fire in addition to smoke and that this ultimately is going to be his undoing as president. But if you talk to the folks who actually make a lot of decisions in the party, they still believe that the health care issue is more potent at this point than the kind of drama surrounding President Trump. Here's the challenge, though. A lot of the sort of Democratic donor base is consumed by President Trump's conduct and this issue surrounding the Russia investigation. Mm. So that can be difficult to navigate when your financial base is more invested in that issue than, say, premium increases or copays. So how does all this affect the Democrats' ability to forge a coherent political strategy? It's proving a challenge because what can help you raise money isn't necessarily the best issue for you to run on. To what extent do you think the media have contributed to this environment? The chicken and the egg question, who's driving whom? It's a great question. And I do think that because so much of the reporting about the Russia scandal is generated by the media, that there is then an impulse the next day to ask the politicians about their reaction to your story. And that then sort of drives that story even further. But that said... Even if we weren't asking the follow-up questions, the politicians themselves would probably be commenting on it anyways. It's the biggest story there is in the world right now. The American president is hugely controversial, and there are questions surrounding his campaign's contacts with the adversarial nation. Bigger than 24 million people losing health care? It's fascinating to see some on the left who say, well, yeah, if the president himself is swallowed by this issue and ultimately is driven from office, then yes, that is the bigger story than healthcare, <laughs> because then it's the matter of, of the presidency itself. Mm-hmm. We just don't know if the issue is that serious as of right now. Fair enough. You quote the political strategist Anita Dunn. It was mm-hmm. really interesting. She said, the Trump story happens without us noting that the leaks will keep coming and Democrats don't have control over the FBI inquiry or the investigation by the special counsel or the congressional committees that have Republican majorities. But the health care contrast is very, very powerful. What is she saying there? I think what Anita is saying there is that you don't want to pour kerosene on a fire that you don't have to pour it on. Mm -hmm. It's the old Sun Tzu maxim. Don't get in the way of an enemy who's destroying himself. And given the leaks, given the reporting, given President Trump's 
response to the reporting and the leaks, there's no reason for Democrats to sort of fan those flames. That story is going to drive itself, and they're better off focusing on issues and driving issues that aren't necessarily going to be organically in the media the same way this investigation will. You've described how difficult it still is for progressives to present their message while Trump is grabbing news headlines by the hour. And we recently spoke with a conservative who who had the same gripe. He argued that despite consolidated right-wing power, conservatives feel unable to move the agenda forward because he's dominating the ether. So what's that tell us about the political landscape right now? That the sort of, as the world turns, West Wing edition is in fact sucking the oxygen out of the policy agenda of both political parties in this country, that it's harder for Democrats to get their message out about a progressive agenda, but it's also harder for conservatives not only to drive their message, but to actually enact their agenda. And that's why it's June 1st, and they have not passed a major bill yet. Jonathan Martin, thank you very much. All right. Thanks for the time. Appreciate it. Jonathan Martin is a national political correspondent for The New York Times. As we heard, Republicans also lament their inability to make headway on legislative goals. But one thing is certain. It is not Donald Trump's fault. At least, not if you ask Donald Trump. During his campaign, he blamed the nation's problems and his own offenses and blunders on perpetrators ranging from crooked Hillary to Mexicans to Muslims to the Democratic Party to the Republican Party to Obama to Wall Street and, I believe, Lex Luthor. Once elected, though, he's distilled his animus toward one ultra-arch nemesis. A few days ago, I called the fake news the enemy of the people, and they are. They are the enemy of the people. The press honestly is out of control. The level of dishonesty is out of control. Look at the way I've been treated lately, especially by the media. No politician in history, and I say this with great surety, has been treated worse or more unfairly. It's likely no other president has so blamed the messenger for his own travails. But if we're just talking about the sheer negativity of Trump's coverage, well, That he got exactly right. The coverage of the first 100 days broke 80% negative to 20% positive. Thomas E. Patterson is the Bradley Professor of Government and the Press at Harvard's Shorenstein Center and author of a new report that examined coverage of the president's first few months. Before Trump, the president who in the first 100 days had the worst coverage was Bill Clinton. His was 60% negative to 40% positive, so... Trump is pretty much in an atmosphere that hasn't been touched before. Also unique, the sheer amount of coverage. Compared to what's normal for a president, he got three times as much coverage. So the press can't seem to get enough of Donald Trump, even though Donald Trump, for his part, certainly goes after the press at every opportunity. Now, what's being measured here is tone, and there's no blood test for tone. So how do you do it? What's the methodology? What we're talking about is from the perspective of the person who's the subject of the news story, would that person see this news story as positive or negative? So it can be simply a development that reflects unfavorably on the individual. For example, when the district court judge in Seattle struck down that first immigration order, that would be considered an unfavorable news report from Trump's perspective. And the negativity is across the board. Every single thing but the cruise missile attack on Syria has been a drubbing. Well, we took a look at major topics, immigration, war on terrorism, and the like. There was not a single one of those major categories where his coverage on balance was more positive than negative. You noted something odd about the negative coverage, and that is that it wasn't a partisan pylon. Well, that's what's interesting. You know, when a president gets coverage, usually it's other people talking. But in Trump's case, about two-thirds of the time, the voice you hear is that of Donald Trump. That was true also during the campaign, by the way. You looked at Hillary Clinton's coverage, on the other hand. What was the dominant voice in her coverage? Well, it wasn't Hillary Clinton. In fact, uh, it was Donald Trump. Uh, He had more soundbites about Hillary Clinton than she did about herself, and he also had more soundbites about himself. And that's carried over into these presidential weeks. And the other voices? 
someone in the administration, Sean Spicer obviously being one of those voices, and then the congressional Republicans. Democrats accounted for only about 6% of Trump's coverage, and protesters 3%. So they've been a quite, quite small voice. Increasingly, White Houses have gotten more and more adept at going around the White House press corps. But even when Trump does that on Twitter, for the most part, it still blows up in his face. Well, I think we have a press that's obsessed almost with Donald Trump and has been since he announced his candidacy. You know, they're so focused that almost anything that he says or does, including his tweets, basically feed into the news coverage. And if I had a criticism of the coverage of the first 100 days, is that it's been so Trump-focused. And there's been very little carry-through on, for example, on his executive orders. His executive orders on immigration uh, received quite a bit of press attention. But the others accounted for only about one-half of 1% of his news coverage. And it's here where he's had some policy impact. The press, I think, is making a mistake that it made during the election, focusing too much on the candidates and not paying a lot of attention to what was going on out in the country. I do think the success or lack of success of this presidency is going to rest largely on how the American public responds to it. It's a big story, and it's been a largely uncovered story. Now, Trump supporters, and I think the GOP in general, and this goes back decades, have been quick to assert a liberal bias, a Democratic Party bias. And your conclusions did observe bias, but it wasn't partisan. You wrote about the journalistic reflex or instinct to report on bad weather, not good weather. If you look at all presidential nominees since Reagan and their coverage during the general election, Democratic and Republican, all but Barack Obama in 2008 received unbalanced negative coverage. So, you know, that's the press in its, in its usual mode. They're on the attack. They're looking for the critical story, things that go bad rather than things that go good. And it's not just about presidents. It's also about Congress. That erodes public trust. You know, they certainly let us down if they don't blow the whistle when things go wrong. On the other hand, to tell us when things are going right, I think that's an important part of their responsibility as well. Now, I would assert that Trump's complaints that the press is unfair is in some ways a self-fulfilling prophecy. He has, through his own words, actions, inactions, and lies, invited the kind of coverage that he is complaining about. So what's the press to do? You know, I do think if this had been a Democratic administration and had gotten off to the start that it has, you'd see something very close to what we found, very heavily negative coverage. Now, the press has a problem whether it's unbiased or not. And that's the way we perceive bias in news coverage. When you go back to the eight years of the Clinton administration, Democrats were somewhat more likely than Republicans to think that the media were biased. So now we have a Republican uh, in the White House, and not surprisingly, it's Republicans overwhelmingly who think the press has been unfair. But isn't the answer to that, oh, well, because anything you do to try to address those perceptions of bias takes you down that slippery slope of false balance and pulling punches and bending over backwards. I would say let the chips fall where they may. No, I agree with that. But again, I do think the press is too critical. Under-reporting the positive developments, over-reporting the negative What's interesting is when there have been studies and Americans are asked, you know, what's the trend in crime? What's the trend in employment? What's the trend in inflation? Their opinions are that it's worse than it actually is. You know, when we looked at coverage of Muslims over the last decade, that's run about 80% negative. And then you wonder why the American public has a negative perception, uh, or many do, of Muslims. Now, when Trump announced for the presidency, he really tapped into a lot of resentment. And those negative perceptions that so many people have of these groups made that a pretty easy sell in some quarters. I'm not trying to say that the press has full responsibility for that, but I do think the balance is somewhat out of whack. Those on the right, or particularly in Trump's base, will look at this report and say, aha, it's the smoking gun. It is overwhelmingly negative. Ipso facto, there is bias against the president and so forth. Now, there's another interpretation, 
that this president, at least through the first hundred days, was a historic menace, an incompetent. If that's the case, how do you even go about discerning what is overly negative and what is just reporting what you're seeing? I think it's a troubling question, actually. There was a time when the American public had a somewhat common base of facts. And what's happened with this media system we have and the fact that a lot of us uh, collect information around our biases, facts can be used to advance your partisan agenda. I do think one thing the press needs to be careful about is Trump has kind of gone to war with the press. I think there could be a tendency for journalists to think that they're at war with the president. And to the degree that they see themselves as the opposition, I think they're headed for trouble. One final thing. If this report is, in fact, a kind of Rorschach inkblot that Trump haters will see one way and Trump supporters will see the opposite, would your last number of weeks been better off spent fishing or, uh, <laughs> you know, scrapbooking or something <laughs> that you'll actually be able to see some tangible results? No, Bob, you know— we did studies during the election, and we found that Hillary Clinton had more negative coverage than Donald Trump. Now, we got the exact opposite response to those studies. Conservatives dissed them, saying that can't be true, that they were trying to get her elected. Well, if they were trying to get her elected, they had a funny way of going about it. But I think as a scholar, you try to be unbiased, and you put it out there. And at that point, boy, you lose control of it pretty fast. But maybe I'll find some time this summer to do some fishing. <laughs> Tom, many thanks. Bob, you're welcome. Thomas E. Patterson is the Bradley Professor of Government and the Press at Harvard's Shorenstein Center. Coming up, the right does not have a monopoly on illiberality. This is On the Media. On the Media is brought to you by Zbiotics. Tired of wasting a day on the couch because of a few drinks the night before? Zbiotics Pre-Alcohol Probiotic is here to help. Zbiotics is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic, invented by scientists to feel like your normal self the morning after drinking. Zbiotics breaks down the byproduct of alcohol, which is responsible for rough mornings after. Go to zbiotics.com/otm to get 15% off your first order when you use OTM at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money no questions asked. That's zbiotics.com/otm and use the code OTM at checkout for 15% off. For so many black people, the Wiz feels like home. The new stage revival has Broadway buzzing, and as it gears up for a national tour, We'll consider the impact this story continues to have 50 years down the yellow brick road. I'm Kai Wright. Join me on the next Notes from America as we pay tribute to the Wiz. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. And I'm Bob Garfield. In 2016, a new pollutant began increasingly contaminating the media ecosystem so-called fake news, from fake websites creating alternative realities for the left and the right, pushing both deeper and deeper into their partisan bubbles. The culprits? Savvy entrepreneurs like the Macedonian teenagers who built bogus pro-Trump sites, then feasted on the clicks and Google AdSense revenue. It was a tidy narrative, but did it miss the point? Fake news, after all, is simply a convenient vehicle for the real product, outrage, which drives traffic, social sharing, revenue, and more outrage. Craig Silverman is the media editor at BuzzFeed. He's reported on the big players in the hyperpartisan clickbait game, players like American News LLC. They're a company, as far as I could tell, run by two guys from California. They're a unique kind of breed of these hyperpartisan entrepreneurs in that they own at least two sites that are conservative, as well as two sites that are liberal. When you say that they're doing the same thing from the left and from the right, you're not kidding because it's often the same content just with a few word changes that altogether flip the meaning and the audience. 
That's right. So I came across one article on a conservative website, conservative101.com. And the headline was, White House just gave Conway the boot, prepare to be infuriated, reporting inaccurately that Kellyanne Conway had been kicked out of the White House. And as I was kind of looking into that story, I came across a similar story on a liberal site called liberalsociety.com. And the headline of that was, White House finally gives Kellyanne Conway the boot. Are you glad? They use the exact same image. And then when I actually read the articles, I found that they embedded the exact same tweets. And really, there was probably only about 15 to 20 words that were different between the two of them. And through tracking back, I realized that, oh, they were actually run and owned by the same company. The, the game for these sites is Facebook. That's really all they care about. They don't care about search. They don't care about building necessarily an audience that comes back to them every day. They care about crafting a headline and an associated thumbnail that someone will see on Facebook and it will get that emotional reaction right away. And it's playing to obviously our biases and it's playing to also the things about Facebook's platform that really enable content to move quickly. And I think the election, one of the takeaways of it is that the stuff that was more partisan and that often bled into the world of being misleading or false, tended to perform better. Some of this stuff, as I gather from your BuzzFeed piece, doesn't even bother to pretend that it's policy-based. It's just like triumphalism. We won! And you lost. It is very much about demonizing the other side and also giving people good news. No matter what's actually happening or what's going on, feeding them good news that makes them feel like their side is winning. When I first published that story, somebody on Twitter said that in the fight game, it's always the promoter who wins the most. And I think that that's probably true with what's going on here. You've got some very big networks, particularly on the right, capitalizing on this stuff. Now, hyper-partisanship isn't new in the media. The phenomenon you're describing is the convergence of technology, particularly social media, and the marketplace for outrage. What happened that made this cottage industry so blow up in the 2016 election cycle? If you look at data from Pew and other places that really do kind of try to quantify polarization, they do find more and more people moving to the edges of right and left. So we have an increasingly polarized society. That's one piece of it. A second really important piece is that if you look at the 2012 election, Facebook wasn't a really big factor when it came to news. And now all of a sudden in 2016, it is a place where a huge amount of Americans are getting their news from. In fact, we did a survey and we found that as many American adults had gotten news from Facebook. Facebook in the previous 30 days as they had from broadcast TV. And those were the two highest numbers. So Facebook's suddenly huge news effect and Facebook's algorithm is really deciding what people see. And the algorithm takes signals from you and from me when we like something or comment on something. And so the more that people react strongly to something, the more exposure that content gets. The Facebook algorithm is engineered to be a feedback loop to feed you more of what you most react to. And over time, the people who run these hyperpartisan sites and people who run other types of sites started to see, frankly, that the stuff that went to emotions such as anger or frustration or sometimes you know, extreme happiness, that was the stuff that got people to click on it. And then the more people who clicked or liked, the more people the algorithm would show it to. And so you combine that with polarization and then you bring in a really wild election that, of course, generates a huge amount of attention. And it was a massive business opportunity. So the amount of hyperpartisan sites exploded in 2016 as well. But is there any way back from this? Now that we are in this cycle, this endless cycle, where they have so profited from the phenomenon, is there any way back? I was talking yesterday with someone who runs a site on the right and a site on the left. And whether he's being sincere or not, he was saying how he's now ready to take his sites into the middle. And he feels that there is a little bit of a burnout happening right now, particularly on the conservative side. Now that Trump is in power and you don't have enemies like Clinton and Obama, maybe now there is a way to start shifting the site and feeding people stuff that's a little more in the center. He talks about that as an experiment. He doesn't know if it's going to work. I frankly don't think it's going to work because the liberal sites are growing very well by creating outrage stuff around Trump every single day. And so how do we get back? from it? Well, he thinks the only solution is if there was basically some kind of a ceasefire. If everybody who was running these sites, or the big players at least, sat down with Facebook and Facebook said, listen, you know, everyone has to stop these over-the-top headlines and the over-the-top thumbnails. Here are the rules of the road. And if you don't obey them, then we're going to take down your page. He says that that's probably the only way for it to get reined in. Craig, 
as always, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. Craig Silverman is the media editor at BuzzFeed. Craig said that there are more right-wing sites than left-wing ones, but they're certainly out there. And for some liberals fearing a Trump presidency gone completely rogue, the focus has narrowed to a single obsession— the Russia affair. It's a story of intrigue and shifting alliances, lofted by slippery facts from anonymous intelligence sources. And that sent some eager news consumers to some less than reliable places as they try to piece together the plot. Sources with links to the intelligence community say it is believed that Carter Page went to Moscow in early July, carrying with him a pre-recorded tape of Donald Trump offering to change American policy if he were to be elected, to make it more favorable to Putin. That's Keith Olbermann quoting Louise Mensch, former conservative British parliamentarian, current anti-Trump, anti-Russia Twitter conspiracy theorist. You've also claimed that President Putin had Andrew Breitbart murdered to pave the way for Steve Bannon. No, first of all, I haven't. And no matter how many times people say this, it's not going to be true. I said on Twitter in a tweet, I believe that to be the case about the murder of Andrew Breitbart. Well, that's what I just said. Charlatan, opportunist, or true believer, we don't know what's driving Mensch to tell her tales, and she didn't respond to our invitations to come on to the show. But it's clear that her brand of journalism adds a new layer of unreality to an already confounding information landscape. Zach Beecham is a senior reporter for Vox who recently wrote about how Democrats are falling for fake news about Russia. Zach, welcome to On the Media. Oh, I'm so happy to be on. Okay, so a blog called patrobotics.com reported that a sealed indictment had been granted against Donald Trump and that the indictment is intended by the FBI and Justice Department to form the basis of Mr. Trump's impeachment. That's an explosive scoop, if true. Yeah. (laughs) Patrobotics is the blog of a former British parliamentarian from the Conservative Party and also romance novelist, Louis Mensch. He was a right-wing commentator. But since the Trump-Russia scandal began, Mensch has refashioned herself into a sort of citizen journalist, telling the truth about Trump and Russia when the mainstream media won't. The problem is that it doesn't seem like anything she's saying is true. But she did have one true story, and that could potentially lend legitimacy to many of her stories. That's right. He reported that the FBI had a warrant for communications between a Russian bank and the Trump organization. She was right that there was a warrant, which most people weren't reporting. And she has made some allies in her sort of more conspiratorial quest. John Schindler, a former NSA agent and professor at the Naval War College who got caught up in a sex scandal when he was there and resigned. And you have Claude Taylor, who said he had some unspecified position in the Bill Clinton administration and now is a D.C. area photographer. And so you've got the three of them, Louise Mensch, Claude Taylor, John Schindler. They're the driving force behind what you call the Russosphere. That's right. The Russia sphere formed entirely on Twitter. These three people communicating with each other and hundreds and thousands of fans. Mensch has nearly 300,000 Twitter followers. Schindler, not that many fewer. And Taylor, close to 170,000. And the three of them are constantly talking about these conspiracy theories. Notions like Russia funded the protests in Ferguson or that Paul Ryan, Trump, and Mike Pence are all going to go down and you're going to get President Orrin Hatch. Those are actual things I've seen people in the sphere say, things they couldn't possibly know and don't seem to be backed up by any real evidence. And you suggest that the Russia sphere doesn't have one unified, worked-out theory. It seems to be more of a frame in which any number of things can fit? Yeah, it's a way of approaching the world where you assume that whatever is going on is best explained by Russia manipulating it behind the scenes. Or whatever is happening with Trump, it's because of his collusion with Russia. Or whatever is happening with the FBI investigation, it's always about to get more intense and more aggressive. In your piece, 
You mentioned many stories that seem to fit into this Russia frame, even Anthony Weiner. That's right. Weiner pled guilty to charges of sexing with a minor. So Mensch published a story saying there was no 15-year-old girl, that this was part of a hacking group called Crackers with Attitude working with the Russians to ensnare Anthony Weiner so then the emails could be exposed, which would then embarrass Hillary and torpedo her campaign. While the three people you write about are all anti-Trumpers, they're not all liberal. So is this based on ideology or is it based on hating Trump? For Mensch, Schindler, Taylor, those people, there's sort of an ideology, right? They, they are unified in their sense that Russia is out to get the United States and that Trump is their pawn, if not their willing accomplice. But the people who like them don't have these kinds of worked out ideological ideas. They just really hate Trump. And these ideas about Russia provide them with a sense of certainty about the president that they crave. Why do you think liberals are so receptive to this brand of fake news? It's really interesting. During the Obama years, you saw a lot of conspiracy theories on the right flourish, birtherism being the best-known example, but also conspiracies that Obama was rigging economic data, right? And you saw this spread everywhere among conservatives. Now, part of that was that the conservative media was quite happy to amplify a lot of these ideas. You saw them on Fox News and on Breitbart, The Daily Caller, other things with low journalistic standards. But it was also because when people are out of power, they are inclined to blame problems in the world on the people in power. One expert I spoke to on political misinformation said that conspiracy theories were a weapon of the weak. They were a way to understand and make sense out of the world when it doesn't seem to make sense to you or seems hostile to you. You offered a fascinating study by a researcher at Yale named Dan Kahan about a math problem. Would you describe that? So they gave them a kind of tricky math problem. It was a word problem. And some people got questions phrased in terms of the success of a skincare product and actually clearing up your skin. Other people got the question phrased in terms of the success of gun control legislation, whether or not it actually reduced crime and violence. For the people who got the skincare question, Democrats and Republicans were equally likely to get it right and wrong. But when you gave it in terms of a politically loaded issue like gun control, people were much more likely to get the answer that their partisan interests told them they should get. So even though Democrats and Republicans seem to have the same math abilities, <laughs> their partisanship overrode their ability to do basic mathematical reasoning. It's just remarkable. You referenced the one bright spot in your analysis – you note that the absence of a Breitbart of the left has made it harder for these theories to gain traction. They can't keep it in front of people, at least on cable news, but do they even really need cable news? I think they do if they want to get bigger. Twitter is an inherently limited platform because following it and making sense of it requires a lot of attention. So they try these blogs, which actually do quite well. One Mensch story was shared 50,000 times on Facebook. But even that is only going to get you access to a limited audience without the full weight of a large organization behind you. They don't have that right now. Instead, they need mainstream media validators or other validators who are in good standing with a liberal audience. So that could be cable news. It could be newspapers. It could be websites that liberals like to read. It could be celebrities even that are well-regarded in the liberal community. They've gotten some notable people to back them up. That's right. The New York Times reached out to Mensch for an op-ed. And then former DNC chairwoman Donna Brazil tweeted out the story and then thanked Mensch for good journalism. There's another current DNC official that retweeted one of her tweets as if it was a legitimate scoop, but they're relatively isolated incidents. It's more right now that it is accidentally seeping into the mainstream. This stuff, though, you need to inoculate against it to prevent it from becoming part of an established media culture. Okay, so how do you do that? What is the role that the media can play in reining in this misinformation? The Democrats, as an institution, can do a lot by denouncing these people or just ignoring them. The media should cast light on these people. They should say they don't appear to have any evidence validating their beliefs. 
especially media that's trusted by liberal audiences, they kind of have an obligation to take a look at the more unsavory parts of the liberal media sphere that are starting to grow up in the Trump era. You wrote that all this could discredit the real Russia investigation, which I can totally see. You also wrote that it risks polluting and degrading the Democratic Party. And you said that's what happened to the Republicans, which resulted in the election of Trump. Explain, though, how it pollutes the party. One of the professors I spoke to for this piece said one of the greatest failures of the Republican Party was not pushing back more against the conspiracy theories like birtherism that eventually took over the party. When lots of voters start to believe this stuff, elected officials can campaign on it. And you get people like Michelle Bachman, like Louis Gohmert, and Rep. Steve King, all Republicans, who expound beliefs that you see first in the fever swamps of the Republican media sphere. Ideas that are utterly unfounded and dangerous, if they were acted on, end up becoming actual political priorities for the party because elected officials either believe them or have to answer to people who do. If the Russia sphere ideas become mainstream, you would have a Democratic Party where people went after the president on flimsy pretexts that embraced ideas that had no founding in empirical reality and could have unknown consequences if implemented. And the legitimate aspirations of the Democratic Party, the things that it wants to actually do, would fall by the wayside. The degradation of the Republican Party shows that this really can affect the way that a party operates. Now, Democrats don't have this problem right now, but it could happen. Zach, thank you very much. Thank you. Zach Beecham is a senior reporter for Vox. People have been misled And I've been afraid I've been hit in the head And left for days I've been abused. That's it for this week's show on the media. It's produced by Mira Sharma, Alana Casanova Burgess, Jesse Brenneman, Michael Lowinger, and Leah Fetter. We had more help from Jane Vaughn, and our show was edited by Brooke. Our technical director is Jennifer Munson. Our engineer this week was Terrence Bernardo. Katya Rogers is our executive producer. On the Media is a production of WNYC Studios. I'm Brooke Gladstone. And I'm Bob Garfield. I want you to stop. Find out what's wrong. On the Media is supported by the Ford Foundation and the listeners of WNYC Radio.